The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Hard to Believe, Answering Common Objections to Christianity. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and his shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back in sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it you have a heart to instruct us, to guide us, to teach us, to bring us into the center of the universe and open up your heart to us. And so, Father, we ask that you would bless and anoint the reading of your word this morning, the preaching Would you help me to communicate effectively, to show people the glorious grace that you have for us, and you prepare our hearts to receive such a message? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, we are in our final week of our Hard to Believe series. This has been a six-week journey uh, through some of the hardest, most uh, common objections of Christianity. And what when we look at these questions, what we see is that, that these questions tend to trip us up, both Christians and skeptics alike. Now, the skeptic t- typically isn't afraid to ask these questions, right? They're, they have reasonable doubts, and they're trying to, to work their way through them, and so they fearlessly ask these questions looking for honest answers. Whereas a Christian, they might be more hesitant to, to ask these things openly. They're afraid that If they do ask these questions, maybe their faith will come back inadequate or obsolete. 
But as a missional church, for us here at Sacred City Church, a church that is focused on outsiders as God is doing a work on the inside, we believe that this series is essential for us. See, what it does is it makes, us, makes it clear that we are an outward-facing church, that we're a church for skeptics and seekers alike, a place where people who are outside of the Christian faith can come in along with their questions and be greeted warmly. But this series is also meant to equip you, the body of Christ, Christians in the room, to engage with people who would never step in a church themselves. See, every Christian is a missionary. And in a secularized, postmodern culture, you can expect to encounter these questions from your non-believing friends. And so this series is meant to help you reason and think critically in a humble and winsome way so that you can communicate effectively to your unbelieving friends the good news of the gospel that, that oftentimes gets shadowed by a lot of these big questions. So in order to reach your non-believing coworkers, your neighbors, right, the people that I don't have access to as a pastor— we're equipping you to go out and to carry out these, these conversations, open up a dialogue. But another thing that we're doing through this sermon series here is not just equipping and, and showing that we're outward facing. What we're doing is trying to create a culture here, trying to create a gospel culture that says, you know what? I just don't know about this, right? I've got real questions. I've got real concerns about the Christian faith to create a place where Christians and not yet Christians can sit together and be honest about these fears and doubts and questions. Now, and, and the thing that's beautiful about a gospel culture, a gospel-shaped culture, is that you can do that and be met with gentleness and patience and compassion as you search for truth. So that is essentially the type of culture that we're setting out to create, create here at Sacred City Church. Because to create such a culture is fertile ground for gospel growth. Now, realistically here, this six-week ser series is not some sort of silver bullet, some magic potion that's going to clear up all questions and doubts. In fact, for many of you, it's probably provoked even more questions and caused you to go deeper into the questions and wonder about some certain things. But here we are, and what I believe we're doing here is creating a path, creating, uh, walking down the right path to create a culture that's loaded with potential for gospel growth. See, that's what we're all about here. What, just all those announcements that I made, it's about creating a culture for people to grow in their understanding of, of the gospel, to grow as disciples of Jesus. See, we desire to see unbelievers and skeptics come to faith, to trust in Jesus for the first time, while also seeing Christians grow deeper and deeper into the gospel. And as we make disciples, as we see people grow into the gospel, we believe that God is equipping us to plant churches and to renew the city. See, this is, this is an important time for us to create this kind of culture where people look in and say, hey, that's a place where I want to be. I want to I think through my questions here and be met with that sort of compassion and hospitality. And as we do that, as we create this sort of culture, I believe that this is God's primary strategy for his kingdom of light to break through the darkness. Now, while we unapologetically say that, there are some skeptics who think that God's kingdom of light is a hoax. 
See, just as Christians speak of a loving and just God, a king who is full of mercy and grace and forgiveness, they make objections because what they see is a mean God who in the end just sends people to hell. See, they think that either God isn't actually loving. See, either God isn't actually loving and hell does exist and he just wants to punish people or God is loving and hell is a man-made construct meant to cause fear and to manipulate people into doing the right things. So what today we're looking at, the big question we're taking a look at is how can a loving God send people to hell? This question has been around for a long time. And like the other questions that we've experienced so far, this is really one big umbrella question that has several small objections underneath of it. So to give one simple answer would rarely satisfy the person who's asking this question. So to treat it fairly, what we need to do is we need to get get to some of the objections beneath the question. Now, one of the objections beneath the questions here, specifically in our culture, relates to how we see this question. There is no doubt that most secular people are offended by the idea of divine judgment. See, most people in our culture resist the idea that there is a superior being who determines what is right and what's wrong, who determines what's good, right, and perfect, and what is not, and then will evaluate people based upon their pursuit of that in the end. See, Western people, what we're trending toward is that each individual person has the ability to determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And if you look at it, if you really trace this to the root here, this is a product of our highly individualized culture where we say often what is right for me may not be right for you and vice versa. And so with that sort of mindset, with that highly individualized culture, this makes the idea of divine judgment impossible, right? That there would be no real standard of what is right and what's wrong. And so to say that there is that, to say that there is a universal standard of what's good and right and perfect is offensive to many people. Now, at the same time, while people are offended by the idea that God can send people to hell, that there is wrath, that there is anger, these same people are likely drawn to the Christian teachings about forgiveness. But here's the thing, that if you were to go to other parts of the world, the offensiveness, is that a word? The offensiveness, the offensivity, the offensiveness of Christian teaching would actually flip. In traditional societies, the idea of forgiveness is offensive. The idea of turning the other cheek does not make sense. Right? What makes sense is judgment, retaliation. That makes sense to traditional cultures. So to dismiss Christianity purely based on the cultural norms that you are, are subscribed to puts you in danger of becoming a cultural elitist. It's saying that, that this can't be true, that this worldview can't be true because it doesn't jive with my cultural framework. And to say that, is very narrow-minded, right? Because what it says is is that my culture is right and that culture is wrong. So when we consider some of these offensive 
traits or, or, or statements or thoughts of Christianity, it's really necessary for us to be mindful of our ge- geographical location and the social climate which causes us to interpret things differently. So let's just suppose this for a moment. Let's suppose that Christianity isn't a construct of any one culture, that it's actually tra- the transcultural truth of God that's meant for all people in all places at all times. Now, if that were the case, then the Christian worldview, Scripture, would always be offensive to every culture in some way, shape, or form. Tim Keller reasons this. He says that if this is the case, we would expect that Christianity would contradict and offend every human culture at some point because human cultures are ever-changing and imperfect. Now, if Christianity were the truth, it would have to be offending and correcting your thinking at some place perhaps speaking to Western people, perhaps this is the place where the Christian doctrine of divine judgment is correcting your thoughts. Now, what he's saying here is because every culture is bound to be wrong on some things, our cultural sensitivities don't make for the best evaluation of the validity of the Christian faith. So whatever your worldview is, whatever your culture subscription is, Christianity will both affirm things in it and also be confrontational to different things in it. Therefore, if that's the case, if Christianity is going to push back, we can make the same thing, make the same claim based upon your worldview being obsolete based on someone else's worldview. So let me say this, just to kind of wrap up this thought here. Because Christianity is offensive to us on the basis of our cultural sensitivities, just because it does that does not mean it is untrue, right? For example, just when, just when a kid who has no filter walks up to a heavy person and says, why are you fat, right? That, that's offensive. That's an offensive question or thought or statement, but it does not change the fact that there might be some sort of weight issue there, right? I've been on the receiving end of that question a couple times. It does not change the truth of the matter. It is still the reality. Now, with this cultural piece aside, we can kind of enter into this question even deeper here because many people refuse the idea that God could both be loving and have wrath, right? It's this idea that, that, that love and anger are on opposite ends of the spectrum. So if God is loving, that means that he can't have any wrath. He can't be angry at all. But this is a tragic misunderstanding of what love is, not just in spiritual matters, but in real life as well. You see, a common illustration that you hear a lot is, is, is something like this, that I love my wife and I love my kids, right? I love them so much that if, if someone were to intrude in my house in the middle of the night, they would be met with my wrath and the end of my forty caliber Glock, right? Because I love them, my anger, my wrath is invoked whenever the thing that I love is threatened. So in that moment of wrath, that's not unloving. In fact, that, that is a true expression of love, right? Anger exposes what you love the most. And so in a sense, in that scenario, the most loving thing that I could do to my family is to step into that, to be angry, to, to invoke my wrath. And the vice versa, if, if, 
if I were not to stand up in that way, if I were not to, to protect my family, to, to step into that, that would be unloving of me, right? To just let, let the intruder, hey, well, come on in. You know, take what you want, do what you want. That would be unloving. You see, love requires anger. They go together. See, all loving people are sometimes filled with wrath. It's not, it's not just despite of it, but because of love. Becky Piper, in, in her book, Hope Has Its Reason, says, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath isn't a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. See, for God to be loving means that his wrath will oppose everything that threatens what he loves. And scripture makes it abundantly clear from cover to cover that what God loves and delights in is his creation, that he's filled with affection for the things that he has made. Therefore, because God is love, God's love is on those things, whatever is opposed, whatever threatens the peace, integrity, and flourishing of those things, God will be angry toward. And those things, namely sin, evil, and injustice. See, if God is in fact loving, he must have anger or wrath for those things that threatens what he loves. So this question, just, just the beginning of the question, if God is loving, right? he can't have wrath, he can't be angry, that's a misconception, right? Love and anger must be connected together, otherwise it is not really love. See, this question itself is, is flawed because of an immature understanding of love, but there's also another misconception embedded within this question. It's this, that the idea that God sends people to hell as if it's against their own desires, right? This language that God sends people to hell makes it seem like people want to avoid hell, but God is forcing them into the flames, right? That's sort of an illustration that we see in Scripture, these, this idea of flames, this torment that, that, that hell is, that it's very unbearable and un, unenjoyable. Now, to be fair, Scripture does say that there will be a day when God judges all creation. There will be a day when all that is heaven-bound, God will say, yes, onward you go. And that, is what, that which is doomed for destruction, God will give over to destruction. See, this can, just looking at that, can make it seem like God's sending people to hell, but Actually, when you look at it, it's, it's more complex than that. There's more to it. And so to help us kind of wade through this, what I want to do, I, I want to jump into the parable of the prodigal son. Right? There's many misconceptions surrounding this idea of God's love and heaven and hell. And this parable, I believe, can help us just shed some light here on, on what this really looks like. Now, this parable isn't, necessarily a parable of hell. It's not even really a parable of heaven. In fact, you might look at it and say, this, this is kind of a misfit passage here. But what I'm trying to do this morning, I'm not trying to provide a theology of hell. I'm not trying to, to pitch to you a, an image of fire and brimstone. I don't think that's very compelling. But what I want to do is I want to show you how personal sin is and show you that heaven and hell are both closer than what you think. 
So let's turn to Luke 15. Start with verse 11 here. The famous parable of the prodigal son begins. And he said, this is Jesus, he's teaching. He says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now the story starts off with a young man who decides there's got to be a better way to live, right? He looks at his current context, right? And and from what this story alludes to is is things are good at home, right? His dad is wealthy. What we're going to see, the father loves him. There there seems to be all the framework necessary for flourishing for this young man. But he thinks, you know, there's something better out there for me. There's something on the other side of my father's property that I just have to have. And so what this story does, it begins with the son's inclination for something out there. He says, if I could just get out of my parents' house, if I could come out from under their rules, I would finally have access to this good life. And so this desire is within him to go, to go out there and explore. And so his dad, he goes to his dad and he says this. He says, you know, dad, I don't want to wait until you die to get my inheritance. I just want it now. Now this is super offensive, right? The son is essentially saying to his dad that you mean more to me dead and, and, and the property that comes to me in, in light of the, the inheritance, that's more valuable to me than the relationship that I have with you in your home. So just fork it over. Give, can I have my share now? And you can just imagine the hurt of the father here, right? The son, can you just imagine that? One of your kids coming to you, dad, I don't want you. I just want your money. But his dad, he says, all right, all right, son. Heartbroken, right? He's probably counting the money with tears in his eyes, unsure if he'll ever see his son again. Now, we can only assume here that that the dad tried to reason with his boy. Right? Try to tell him, hey, hey, son, this is not going to go well for you. Right? You have everything that you need right here. It's, it's not out there. I, 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 what you want is here. But no matter what the dad says, his boy isn't listening. He's lured into what is out there, what the world has to offer him. And then against all caution, the boy takes his split and he he runs away from from home, chasing his fantasy, chasing the desires that are embedded deep within him. Can you just imagine the father standing at the edge of his his property, watching his son walk off into the the distance with with his share of the inheritance? Right, the feeling of hurt, betrayal, a deep sadness, even frustration, See, from this moment forward, the relationship isn't the same, right? There's been too much hurt done where things can just, even if you were to turn around right there, right, at the end of the driveway and come, you know what, Dad, I messed up, I'm sorry. But let's, the hurt's been done. Things are fractured here. Things won't be the same from here on out. You see, what this shows us is, is a biblical view of sin and its effects. 
You see, one of the caricatures that people have for sin is just doing something naughty, right, and getting a little slap on the wrist. Oh, I really shouldn't do this, but, you know, whatever. See, sin is far more personal than that. That's such a small understanding of what sin is and what sin does. You see, sin separates us from relationship, primarily our relationship with God. It takes us away from the context that we were made for. Right, If God is the source of love and joy and wisdom and goodness, that's what we were supposed to, to live in and flourish in and being in that location. But what sin does, it, it removes us from that context. It takes us away from God's loving provision. It's like a fish out of water. Right, It doesn't go well. Eventually time will expire and we'll realize the mistake, the error we made. But here's the thing to be completely removed from God's presence would be what hell is like. To have no access to God's love, joy, goodness, that is a picture of hell. It's a loss of our capability for giving or receiving love or joy. Now, it's not that God's love has stopped going at us, right? We're told in scriptures that God is steadfast in his love. He's unchanging. It's a unilateral, it's a constant outpouring of love. But what it shows us here is that we have failed to love God back. That's what sin is. It's a failure to respond to the Father's love with love of our own. Now you might say, well, you know, if the dad in the story really loved his kid, he would have just forced him to say to stay around, right? Would have said, no, son, you're not going. This isn't going to happen today. But this is the thing about love. Love cannot be forced. See, love offers itself and then gives space for an independently generated response. The moment love is forced, it becomes manipulative and tyrannical. So for the dad to say, no, 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 you're not going, that would be manipulative. He, he couldn't manipulate his son into loving him back. His, his son's affections and desires are already set on something else. And you might think, well, okay, well, he, he couldn't force him to stay. He couldn't force him to love him, but he could have made it harder for him to go. He could have, he could have withhold his inheritance. Now, as painful as it probably was for that father to sort through his inheritance and, and hand that over, what that was, was a sincere gesture of love, right? What he saw, the dad saw his boy going out into the, the big, bad world. And he said, you know what? If, if your heart is set on this, if this is where you want to go, I want to make sure that you have what you need to succeed. And if it means giving you some coin, then, then that's what it is. It's a gesture of love. Father's saying, I don't necessarily agree with you. This money is not an affirmation of me saying, go get them, son, but this is money that's meant to help you, to preserve you. See, everything that the father does in the story is motivated by love for his son. There's absolutely no doubt about this. The dad's not apathetic to the situation. He's heartbroken. There's probably not a day that goes by where he doesn't think about his son who has left home. But because he loves him, he lets him go. He gives him over to his desires for a world that's out there. Now, there are some parallels here. In Romans 1, 
we're told that God gives sinful people over to the desires of their heart. He does not affirm those actions. He does not approve that wandering or veering. He says, I'm going to give you over. Because I love you, I'm going to let you go and pursue what you want. See, the problem with the scenario isn't that the father doesn't love his son. He does. He does love him unapologetically. The problem is that the son has misplaced desires, right? He loves things more than he loves his father. He's motivated by a toxic form of self-love. And what this does, this toxic form of self-love will hurt others and it will eventually ruin him, which is what we see in verses 13 through 16. Now, verse 13 ends by saying that this young, foolish boy goes off and he spends every single penny on reckless living. It says that it's squandered, right? That means that, that it's reckless, foolish spending. And you can imagine what this was. In fact, later on in the passage, it alludes to it. Women, booze, drugs, cars, big vacations, extravagant penthouses, you name it. Whatever he wants, he went for it. He was all in. Whatever his desires pushed him towards, he pursued He indulged in it without thought of consequences and it led him to thing after thing after thing. Now, I don't know about you, but I can relate to this in some ways, right? I've never never gone to my father and asked for an inheritance and gone off and, you know, just really went AWOL, but I have done this in some ways, right? Where, Where I feel like what I want is right here and I get there and I realize, oh, that's not really what I want. It's this next thing. And just moving deeper and deeper and deeper into the pursuit of, of something that is, might be good, but it's not meant to be ultimate good. See, what happens is when you keep going from thing to thing, you realize that you are unsatisfied with what you currently have, and you have to keep going. And you go deeper and deeper, doubling down each time when something doesn't satisfy and that's what the son does. He, he digs himself deep into his own personal toxic self-obsession until he finally runs out of money. There's not a dime to his name. Then verse 14 says that there was a na- nationwide famine, right? This, there was a crisis, an external crisis that exasperated his self-imposed tragedy. Now you would think, Right, He runs out of money. There's this huge crisis that's going on nationwide. He's in a foreign land. You would think that this would be a moment where he says, you know what? I'll go home. Right, My dad's in a different place. Things are probably better there. I'll go home. But that's not what he does. Because he's given himself to his own desires, he just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. And he says, you know what? I can make this work. I'm going to go get a job. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this lifestyle work for me. And so what he does, he goes to a farmer and he gets a job feeding pigs. Now, for the original audience, when Jesus is telling the story, this would have been the most detestable occupation, one of the most detestable occupations that a person can have, right? Pigs were viewed as unclean. They're, they're, they're not worth food. They're not really worth anything in the Jewish culture mindset. And so to be a pig farmer is meaning just you're basically wasting your time. And so he goes and he gets his job. Uh, verse, let's see, where is that? Verse 16, to, to try to maintain this li- lifestyle, he says, uh, let's see, so 15. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. 
And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. See, this this young man was so wanting. He had such a gaping hole in his heart that he wanted anything at this point, that he just wanted to eat what the pigs were eating. And in the Sunday school version of this, right, he's kind of portrayed as this guy who's just, you know, at the pig trough and he's scooping up with the pigs. But it's at, Scripture actually says that no one gave him anything, right? He didn't even, he couldn't even eat what the pigs were eating. Nobody gave him anything. There was just this void that he was longing to have filled. Now, scholars say that this is, what shows here is, is more than just a lack of basic needs, Right? What this shows is that he has been abandoned. All the buddies that he had when he had coin and he was splurging on these extravagant things have vanished. Right? No one's there to help him through the tough times. No one's there to have his back. Now to me, right here, when we see this young man at the lowest of lows, right? he's at the bottom of the barrel here. This to me is a more compelling picture of what hell is like. See, there's, there's some commonalities here between the, the nor- normal stereotypical view of hell with the flames and the fire and this story. See, because fire disintegrates. Fire destroys. And self-centeredness does the exact same thing. And we can actually see this destruction, right? We don't, need to, we don't need to fast forward to eternity to see this happening. We can see this unfold right here in the day-to-day. See, those, who, those people who are habitually self-centered, that live a life that's just focused on themselves and getting to the desires that they have, you can see their life disintegrate. You can see it falling apart. It creates bitterness, envy, anxiety, paranoia, and they have an inaccurate self-perception. You see, this is what hell is like, to be at the bottom of the barrel, have nobody looking for you, to have nobody in your corner, to have nothing, all your needs are going unmet. You should have nothing. It's just you. That's what hell is, to just to be at the bottom of the barrel and only have you. Tim Keller says, hell then is a trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on forever. See, it's this idea of self-centeredness going on and on and on. And as time compounds, the intensity of self-absorption increases until it becomes to the point where all you can think about is you. Now, to think of it in this way, in terms of addiction, right? This, is, this helps us kind of get some handles on here. Think in terms of an addiction to drugs, porn, gap, gambling, uh, self, whatever the addiction is. There's this period of disintegration, right, where you need more and more to get your fix, Right? the highest a meth user will ever get is their first hit, right? All other attempts at getting high is trying to recreate that first experience. But because 
you've already been exposed to that. It, it never gets to the place that it was. There's always this need for more and more and more to get that fix. And then as you're pursuing that, right, because you're just looking at yourself, I've got to get this, I've got to get this. This is what I need, this is what I need. What happens then is there's isolation. Right? At that point, you, your world becomes you. You, you alienate yourself from other people. You justify your behavior and it leads to self-pity. You blame others for your actions, which leads to self-denial or responsibility. And in doing so, you push people out. See, this is what happens to us spiritually when we are addicted to self. We need more and more of myself. And as we pursue myself more and more and more, I just push others out until I'm isolated and alone and have nothing but me. This leads to increasingly isolation, to, to, to more isolation, denial, delusion, and, and ultimately self-absorption. Now, C.S. Lewis says that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who say to God, thy will be done, right? People submit and say, I realize that I'm not the center of the universe, God. You are. I, I resign to your will, to what you want. Your will be done. And the other group of people, God actually says to them, fine, thy will be done. Keep going. Keep chasing yourself. See, C.S. Lewis says that everyone who's in hell chooses it for themselves. It's just a continual indulgence in the flesh, in the desires, giving over and over and over. See, hell is simply getting what your flesh wants. It's complete indulgence in the self. And this view of hell and how people get to hell completely destroys the idea of God being a mean old guy up on the throne and saying, you go to hell, you go to hell. No, he gives people over to their own desires. So he's not sending anyone to hell. People are choosing hell and pursuing it without relenting. Now, Christians in the room, you might be wiping your brow and say, dodge that one, right? But here's the thing. Hell is closer than you think. Hell is closer than you think. C.S. Lewis says that in each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. See, Christians aren't immune to this self-centered pull, right? We all face it day to day. We can feel it dragging us down. And we'll feel that for our whole life as long as we're on this side of eternity. But here's the thing. The lifelong work of a Christian is to put the fire of hell that's within us out day by day, moment by moment. 
See, when self-focus emerges, we can't just say, oh, no worries, I'm, I'm heaven-bound. That'll work itself out, right? That is a, a dangerous way of thinking about things. You can't do that, right? If you're a Christian, you have to deal with, with the flames of hell that, that pop up in your heart. And the only way to deal with it is to extinguish it with the gospel. It's to move deeper and deeper into God's grace. See, that's the only thing that will put out the flames of hell in your heart. Now, one of the biggest misconceptions, and this is so huge, right? Guys, this is so huge. Culturally, the church has drifted into this big time. It's this idea that you put the flames out by doing good or working towards self-improvement. Now, this seems to be logical, right? But at the root of this, at this so-called solution, it's nothing but looking to yourself. What you're saying is, I will do better. I will try harder. I will make less mistakes. I'll get it right this time. But all of those things are just a polished version of self-focus and self-absorption. This is poison. See, what this is, is kindling to the fire of hell that is in your heart. Now, it might be nice-looking nice kindling, right? Usually you go to a bonfire, people throw in scrappy pieces of wood. Right? This is like throwing in a really nice Amish-made dining room table. It's still going to create a fire. Now, what I'm saying here, I am saying that you can be a good person and still end up in hell, just like the obvious people who go off the rails, right? The younger son type of people who are out doing all kinds of licentious stuff. And I realize this is very offensive to people in our culture. Maybe it's offensive to you because all your life you've bought into this idea that if I'm a good person, then I'll avoid hell. If I'm a good person, God will bring me into heaven. But that is one of Satan's greatest lies. Oh my gosh, it is plaguing the church. That way of thinking is so anti-gospel. Because at the root of what this, this mindset is, at the root of this, it's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about your image, your status, your reputation. It's just polished self-absorption. See, this is, I'm not making this up either. In the story, if you look at verses 25 through 32, you see the older brother, the older brother of the prodigal son who sticks around home with his dad. He doesn't go off and ask for the inheritance. He doesn't go off sleeping with women. He doesn't go off for a big licentious lifestyle. But you know what he does? White knuckles it. He grabs on. He does it the best he can, trying to prove to his dad, Daddy, I love you. Let me show you how. Let me be the good old boy for you. And this is what happens with a person like that. They become so focused on being the good old boy that they become just as wretched as their brother. See, at the end of the story of the prodigal son, the older brother does not, he's not in the party. He's not celebrating with the people. 
He is left outside of the party. He's bitter. He's upset. He's angry. Right? These are all traits of self-absorption. He's self-obsessed. And he misses out because of it. Now, he, he's got the veneer. He looks like he's the good boy. He looks like he's doing stuff right. But his heart is misplaced. The flames of hell have become enormous in his heart. See, this is concerning. This is why the statement that hell is closer than you think is frightening. Right? Anybody is capable of it. Whether you're, you're the licentious, off-the-rails type person, or if you're the, you're the one who bears down and does all the moral things and all the good things, it's scary. But at the same time that hell is close, heaven is also far closer than you think. Heaven is just a moment away, just a prayer away for everyone, whether you are the good old boy or you're the one who's flown off the rails. And there's no secret saying, there's no magical prayer. See, the, there, there's a couple components that are necessary for it. Though. One is to acknowledge your need. Acknowledge that the self, that you are incapable of providing or, or, or delivering what your desires are asking for. You need to realize your inability to fix your situation. And in doing so, when you see, when you see what your sin is doing, when you see that, you want to turn from it. You want to walk away from it. You see the damage it's doing. It doesn't make sense to keep going into it. And so you want to turn from your sin. Now, this is exactly what happens in verse 17. The prodigal son. He's out there. I mean, if God, if the father were absolutely just, he would just say, that's what you wanted? Go for it. Don't hold anything back. Just keep going and going and going. And that is what hell is like for people. There are people who come to the bottom of the barrel and don't realize that they're at the bottom of the barrel. They just keep going in deeper and deeper and deeper, thinking that when they find that thing, that's going to make them happy. But at the end, they just come up empty. But what happens in verse 17, we're told that the younger son, he came to himself. Now, this isn't, what this isn't is some sort of like self-discovery moment for him. Like this didn't come internally, right? Something shocked him to the awareness of what his sin was doing. Something, specifically God, showed him the destruction of the sin and the trajectory of his desires. And so he came to himself. He realized his situation. He realized that this is what his eternity would be like if he just keeps giving himself over to his desires. Everything that he was chasing, everything that he thought would make him happy has proven wrong. It's nothing. It's meaningless. Take a look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and he came to his father. 
Now, what's going on here is this, the son, he's working up this, this apology. He's finally decided, you know what, I'll go back to my dad. My, the, the, the hired hands are living a better life than I'm living here in this country. I'll go back and I'll, I'll just forfeit my identity as a son and work for my dad. And you can imagine that he's, he doesn't know what to expect from his father. Right? His dad has every right to be upset, hurt. He's like, no, son, I already gave you your cut. You go off. You keep going. You keep, you keep doing you. But something scandalous happens. This is so insane. Now, as he arose, this is verse 20, as he arose and came to his father, but while he was a still a, a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to call your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and killed it and let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. See, the dad sees his son, his wayward son, and he is filled with compassion. He runs to him, offers his embrace, puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his finger. Now, this is significant, right? When the son thought, I'll go back, I'll forfeit my identity as a son, I'll go back and work as a servant. The father said, no, 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 you are my son. Nothing can change it. I'll, I'll put my best ring on you. I'll put the robe on you. We're going to have a party in your honor. See, the father's love is poured out on his boy who was once at the gates of hell of self-absorption. He was lost, but now he's found and there is rejoicing. See, there's, there's not even a chance for, for the son to, to let his rehearsed apology go, right? Before he can even say all of it. The grace and love of the father is poured out on the wayward child who has come back home. See, friends, this is what heaven looks like for those who turn away from self and turn back to God. See, people think, oh yeah, heaven's harps and little cherubim and uh, clouds and floating around all day and singing, it's super boring. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the case at all. I think this right here is what heaven is like. The clinking of glass, the laughter, the warm embrace, the dancing, the singing, Right? Psalm 16 says, the fullness of joy at God's presence. And all of this is available for eternity for everyone who comes back to the Father and says, I messed up. I was wrong. I thought I was going to find what I wanted in, in pursuing my desires, but they just turned up empty. Now, There's no question of the love of God here. There's no question of the love of the Father. If you start to think of things in parallels of, uh, of our situation with our Heavenly Father and, and the Son and, and the Father and the story, but there's still this question that lingers. Right? If sin really is a big deal, if sin really is as personal as it seems and causes hurt, does just coming back home fix it? See, 
I think a better question than asking how, how can a loving God send people to hell, I want to know how can a just God send people to heaven? That doesn't make sense to me. Unless you understand the gospel. You see, coming home is only one part of it. Repentance, turning from sin and turning back towards the Father is only one part of it. The other part is having faith that Jesus went to the cross to pay for your sins, that he took the punishment that you deserve to have in light of all your past, present, and future sins that caused harm and damage between your relationship with God. See, what Jesus did on the cross is he reconciled us to God. He makes the wrongs right so that when the Father looks at us, when our trust is on Jesus, he doesn't look at us and see this, uh, this child who had a lot of bad mistakes in the past and now he's fixed up a little bit better. No, no, no. When God looks at us and we are covered in the blood of Christ, he looks at us and he has nothing but love and affection for us because the wrath has been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. See, that's how a just God can let sinful people into heaven that those who believe Christ has gone to the cross for them, that they're counted as righteous. It's not, it's not self-improvement. It's not our morality. It's not being a better person that gets us into heaven. It is only the blood of Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And when you believe this, when you believe that it's true in your heart of hearts, that, that the most vile of sinners can come into heaven based on the blood of Jesus Christ, what you're doing is you're believing that Christ can make anyone fit for heaven. See, that's why Jesus did it. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross to make us all fit for heaven, all those who would put their faith, who would turn from their sin and put their faith in so church, let us repent of our self-focus and pursuits of the flesh and let us turn back to the Father this morning. Let the Spirit help us to boldly trust that Christ has made us fit for heaven. He is making us fit for heaven and that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we have an inheritance that is heaven that cannot be shaken, cannot be taken. So as we come to this Lord's table this morning, we come knowing that this meal is a foretaste. It's a foretaste of the celebration that is to come for those who trust in Christ for their forgiveness and their righteousness. See, what this table tells us is that Christ is our only hope. Let us cling to him this morning. Father, we thank you we thank you for your abundant love and grace and mercy that has been set upon sinners who desire nothing but self-destruction, who deserve nothing but hell and all that is miserable. But you are compassionate and gracious. You offer a way out through your son, that his blood was shed so that ours doesn't have to be, that he faced your wrath and your anger so that we wouldn't have to, that when we come to you, there's nothing but affection and a warm embrace for us, that you welcome into the family. You put the ring 
the family crest on our finger. You throw a party in our honor because what was lost has now been found. Thank you, Jesus, for your unrelenting pursuit of us. Father, help us to respond by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.